Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are talking about teenagers today. So right off the bat, Julie, introduce us to the, the teenage Julie Douglas. What does she look like? What does she believe? What's she into? Um, she likes to try to hypnotize herself. Um, she is interested in fire. And she's learned to silkscreen, so she's making clothes with really odd patterns on it. Oh, and wearing them to school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, big blonde hair. Yeah? What's yeah. her What's her favorite music? Oh, um, The Replacements. Are, are big on the roster. I'm trying to think of what, Oh, Robin Hitchcock. God, I really haven't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about the teenage Robert? Uh, the teenage Robert, uh, he plays, uh, he has abandoned Dungeons and Dragons in favor of Magic the Gathering. He has a few favorite t shirts that he bought at a head shop in Huntsville, Alabama that have uh, Gustav Dore prints on them, except they're like bright purple. He is really into H.P. Lovecraft, and he likes to listen to Tool, Nine Inch Nails, and Marilyn Manson. All right. And, and is there a particular cloud of angst that hangs over this version of you? Um, yeah, I am, well, I am told by my, uh, my mom still mentions in my sisters that I was certainly a moody teenager. I was a little glum, mm-hmm. uh, at times. And I think the ideas that I got excited about, I got ex- excited about these, uh, about sort of dangerous thinking, you know, because that was the, the, the appeal, I think, of stuff like Marilyn Manson at the time was, ooh, this is, this is dangerous music. Uh, even though, and, and, if, and if I could go back and visit the teenage me, like Looper style, and tell him, hey, you're going to hear Marilyn Manson music on, um, like in the mall. <laughs> right, yeah. In just, uh, you know, in, in, you know, 10, 20 years time, uh, you're going to realize just how, non-dangerous <laughs> this uh, this music really was but yeah i feel like there was there was a gloominess and then but also this rebellion and certainly the a pride in this rebellion you know it's like oh, i don't really fit in in small town tennessee because because uh, i'm i'm into i'm into this this is this is who i am well i i can tell you that i was probably the classic sulky teen and i did some awful things that i can't believe i did now that i still haven't admitted to my parents and i certainly will not begin cataloging here but um i will say that having gone through the research for today's podcast about the teenage brain it makes me feel a lot better about the things that i did because sometimes do you ever look back at uh earlier versions of yourself and wonder, like, who was I then, or yeah. how did that happen? And this really, this research on the teenage brain really explains why, that there's a purpose to all of this marauding teenage behavior. Yeah, I mean, it, to, to bring it back to the, the sci-fi movie Looper, where basically you have a, an older version of an individual who goes back and meets the younger version. You know, it's uh, it's uh, Bruce Willis and uh, and what's his name? What's his name? Yeah, mm-hmm. the young actor. What's his name? Yeah, I don't remember his name. No, that's... Oh well. Anyway, young Bruce Willis, just like young Joe and old Joe, and, they, and at one point they have this conversation in a diner, and they end up talking about very plot-centric stuff about like the the, the fate of this individual. But it, it, I couldn't help but think of like all the things I would want to say to my young stuff, which would be stuff like, you know, Marilyn Manson isn't really that dangerous and cool. Just wait, you'll see. And and and, <laughs> and then I might say also, let's talk about your posture and your diet for the next several years. You're going to make it to college. 
and you're going to need to maybe think a little about what you're eating. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, but your teenage brain still wouldn't have been able to absorb that information and, and to have that sort of forethought, right? Right. In and a sense, it needed to go through those experiences. It needed to go through those experiences. And another big thing I would say is, believe it or not, your teenage, your, your high school years are going to end, and you're going to have to know what you're going to do next. And then I would probably have to have the same conversation with my college self. All of this you know, came up in the research, and I really enjoyed some of the quotes that uh, I was finding about being a teenager and, and that experience. Uh, this is a really good one from Stephen King, who's always had a real gift for for putting readers in the mindset of younger and teenage characters. He says, you know, small children take it as a matter of course that things will change every day, and grown-ups understand that things change sooner or later, and their job is to keep them from changing as long as possible. Because as adults, you know, we really we, we don't really do well with change. Uh, King continues, it's only kids in high school who are convinced they're never going to change. There's always going to be a pep rally, and there's always going to be a spectator bus somewhere out there in their future. Hmm. Likewise, uh, some other, here's some other quotes on, uh, on teens. William Shakespeare in The Winter's Tale said, I would there were no age between 10 and 3 and 20, or that youth would sleep out the rest. For there is nothing in the between but getting winches with child, wronging the ancestry, stealing, fighting. <laughs> wronging the ancestry. Yes. <laughs> Fran Lebowitz said, as a teenager, you were at the last stage in your life when you will be happy to hear the phone is for you. And then the, there are various other, everyone's spoken of, teens have been a problem forever. <laughs> They've been a, a, a quandary forever. Aristotle um, uh, more than uh, 2,300 years ago said that, that the, the young are heated by nature as drunken men by wine. Eric Erickson uh, said that the teen years were the most filled with turmoil in any person's life. Um, Freud said uh, adolescence was an expression of torturous psychosexual conflict. And, of course, you can go to any of the, the, you know, the classic horror flicks uh, of, of the like, 50s and 60s. I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage Frankenstein. Teenagers from outer space. Uh, and then later, I was a teenage zombie. I was a teenage mummy. I was a teenage serial killer. That's Those last two are more recent. But still, that you see in those ridiculous movies the idea that it's like, what's going on with teens? Why are teens so weird? Why can't we understand them? Why Is, is there something wrong with their brains? In a sense, there is, because their brains, as we'll discuss in this podcast, are changing. They're undergoing mm-hmm. these changes. A, a lot of stuff is coming online that hasn't really been uh, been been active before, and so their brain is sort of charging up for the adulthood ahead. Yeah, David Dobbs wrote a great article in National Geographic. It is called Beautiful Brains. And he says that these studies help explain why teens behave with such, he says, vexing inconsistency, beguiling at breakfast, disgusting at dinner, masterful on Monday, sleepwalking on Saturday. Along with lacking experience, generally, they, they're still learning to use their brain's new networks. And he says that stress, fatigue, or challenges can cause a misfire. And now there's someone named Abigail Baird who is a Vassar psychologist who studies teens, and she calls this neural gawkiness. And I like this idea because mm-hmm. it reminds me of a puppy dog with, uh, you know, huge paws that has already those, those adult paws, but is very, um, it is very sort of sloppy in its attempt to try to walk around with these giant adult paws. I think about teens the, the same way, uh, because they're still trying to use this neural circuitry and there's a lot of remodeling going on in that brain. Right. To your point, the, the idea that the, the puppy already has sort of a, a adult 
dog paws, right? Uh, and to a certain extent, you can you can see the same thing with with the brain itself. By the the time we hit the age of six, our brain has already uh, hit ninety percent of its its overall size. Most of the brain is it's already the, the rest of the growth is mostly skull width and, and whatnot. But the brain itself, most of the construction is done. If you think of it as a, a house, which is a metaphor that comes up again and again mm-hmm. in uh, the, the research materials we looked at, the house has already been built, the framework, uh, the, the the roof, the walls, etc. All the changes to come are more redecorating, rewiring, uh, and, and getting thing, uh, everything ready for the guests to come over. Yeah, and this is really important because the brain does form from back to front, and so which like is, a wave. Yeah, yeah, like a wave. It kind of the, the it's really important, obviously, to have the brain stem and all these very primal uh, parts of the brain uh, fully formed by age six, right? Yeah. Like think of it as a house. You got to have those bathrooms working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The plumbing has got to be in. Um, so, I mean, it's it's not a huge surprise that the brain has reached ninety percent of its full size by the time a person is six. Um, what has been a surprise to neuroscientists is the different ways that it's incomplete or still being worked on. And this is what we see in the teenage brain. Um, now, we should probably talk about the merits of this because it seems, you know, you, you, I guess you could look at it and say, well, why isn't the prefrontal cortex, which is so important in reasoning and so on and so forth, why isn't that completely developed uh, by age six? Why does it take, you know, all the way to age 25 yeah, for that, that to be developed? Yeah, that's an important thing to mention, too. Uh, some of the studies we're looking at here, we say teen and teens tends to, you tend to think like 13 to 19, but basically we're looking at anywhere between uh, 12 and 25, mm-hmm. which really makes sense to me and makes me feel a little better about, about my own self because I felt like teenage Robert Lamb or Rob or Robbie Lamb, depending on who knew him, um, he, I feel like he- But not Bob. Never Bob. Not yet. Bob is like later years, end of <laughs> life uh, phase. But, uh, but I feel like teenage Robert Lamb was definitely hanging around uh, till 25, if not 26. So, Well, and I think there's a reason why insurance companies will drop your rate when you turn 25, right? Yeah. Part of it is because of this risk-taking behavior, which is associated with teens, mm-hmm. doesn't really taper off until, again, your brain is fully formed in those uh, seats of judgment and reasoning in your brain. Um, now, there there are merits, again, uh, to this because an extended childhood of sorts, which we're seeing here, is essential to being able to operate in the world at large. And we see this in nature, and we've seen this before in New Caledonian crows versus, say, a hen or a chicken. A crow, great tool user, mm-hmm. but has an extended childhood in, um, in terms of nature. But a chicken... It is fast maturing, and it yeah. doesn't have an extended childhood. It's good to go, but it's not go- It's not going to do any of the feats that a crow can do. You can't right. train a, a chicken to pick up uh, coins and put them in a receptacle, right. whereas we have seen that happen with crows. There's a great uh, TED Talk about that. Yeah, they're very intelligent. So, again, there's a big payoff here in having an extended uh, childhood. So one of the big things has changed that certainly separates us from uh, Shakespeare's time and Aristotle's time and, uh, and even earlier Stephen King time, is that we have the ability to scan the brain, to, to look at the brain in real time and see how it's behaving, what areas are lighting up, where the blood's flowing, uh, et cetera. So we have a better understanding about what exactly is going on inside the teen's brain, what kind of rewiring, uh, as it were, is taking place. 
Uh, and there's a, there's a whole list of things that are going on. Yeah, uh, science writer David Dobbs says that uh, there is a much more flattering version of teens in their brains these days. He says that uh, used to, we used to look at them as more of a rough draft, but that we should start thinking them as an exquisitively sensitive, highly adaptable creature wired, wired almost perfectly for the job of moving from the safety of home into the complicated world outside. Yeah, I mean, because we think of anyone's uh, teenage or late teenage stories, and again, that can range anywhere from you know twelve to twenty-five. But part of that rebellion, part of that idea that you're gonna, you, you're more apt to take risks. You're you're rebelling against the establishment. You you think differently than your than your parents, and you feel like you can change the world, and that you have a really important place in the world. It part of this is also that that breaking away from home, right? So there's this view that all of these things, this wiring of the brain is perfect for someone who needs to leave the house because the things that seem important at this point are not the safety of the home and spending as much time as possible with your with your parents while they're around that kind of thing no it's about i need to get out and make a name for myself i need to or i need to get out and meet girls i need to to get out and uh and be myself and find this uh, culture or subculture that i connect with and makes me feel whole well, and one of the most important things about human development is this ability to leave home, whatever that is, mm-hmm. this separation, because really this, this is the, um, the portal into adulthood. And so it would make sense that teens' brains are wired for riskier behavior because it allows them to imagine themselves as adults to separate themselves from the parental unit and to strike out on their own. So, of course, this is the place where you see a lot of clashing between parents and kids because uh, parents, although they want their kids to be independent, don't want them to be speeding at crazy speeds through the streets, right, of their town. Um not realizing that this speeding is actually the teen trying to take control of some aspect of their lives and testing the boundaries. It really is sort of they're trying to bolster themselves to make that separation, yeah. even if it just seems like they're doing something stupid. Yeah, and a lot of times, too, the, the, when we're talking about the risk, it's it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, they, they can't really perceive risk that well. They don't understand that driving fast can kill you or that you know hanging out at this uh, party where there's underage drinking is you know could potentially screw screw up your life in the short term anyway if the police show up you know uh, but it's not that they don't realize those risks but that they there's more emphasis on the potential rewards of say um, feeling the thrill of driving really fast mm-hmm. or just or going to this party where there are cool people and whom Associating with uh, has a vital impact on who I am and my identity and making uh, myself uh, who I'm going to be. Yeah, it is really interesting that um, this novelty seeking, this risk taking is something that um, is not because they, they, as you say, can't sense it or, or realize that there's a risk in it. Lawrence Steinberg, who is a developmental psychologist specializing in adolescence at Temple University, says that teens actually overestimate risk. And it is, as you say, um, it's not, it's, it's that they're coming at the, uh, weighing of the risk differently than adults. And researchers like Steinberg and Casey believe this risk-friendly weighing of cost versus reward has been selected for because over the course of human evolution, this is according to David Dobbs, the willingness to take risks during this period of life has granted an adaptive 
edge. And so, like as you were saying, they they see a different reward, and this is because their limbic systems、um, are actually hypersensitive. Now, keep into、uh, keep in mind that their prefrontal cortex go, undergoes a great many changes during this time too, and the prefrontal cortex, again, the seat of reason. Actually, sees a reduction in gray matter. So, what you're seeing here is not great reasoning skills, but then heightened limbic system. They're going to be a lot more sensitive to the reward prospect, and of course, this creates the condition for risky behavior. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dive even deeper into the mind of the teenage you. And one of the things we'll get to, which I found most exciting, is why do teenagers feel they are the center of the universe, and why do they think they can change everything in it? All right, we're back. So, the teen brain.、Um, we've talked a little bit already about.、Uh, About the, the riskiness, the, the, the risk taking of teens, about how the, the teenage brain is that way because the, the adult brain is developing,、mm-hmm. and how there's also an ev- evolutionary advantage to thinking this way because it'll get you out of the house and away from home and out starting this new life. In a way, it's kind of like the, the wings that a, a, a creature might develop just so it can leave the nest. And、uh, and find his home. I'm thinking of、uh, termites. I guess the queen and king termite、mm-hmm. they develop these wings. They fly far away, and then they start life anew, and they burrow underground and are never seen again. So you've got the toolkit、yes. that's hanging out there.、Um, I wanted to point out that、uh, again, the brain is undergoing a lot of remodeling at this time, in particular in that prefrontal cortex. And cognitive neuroscientist Sarah Jane Blakemore compares the prefrontal cortex in adult and、uh, adults and teens, and shows us、uh, how typical teenage behavior is caused by the growing and developing brain. And she does this by pointing out that gray matter volume in prefrontal cortex peaks in early adolescence, around 10 for girls and 12 for boys, and then later in the adolescence, you see a significant decline in gray matter volume. In the prefrontal cortex. So, what's amazing about this is it's not just that this is an undeveloped part of the brain; it's that it is changing. And the only thing that I can、um, equate it to is something like the pregnancy brain or the pregnant brain, or you've probably heard that term before,、yeah. um, where an, a, a female's brain will change during pregnancy, kind of undergo some different wiring, and as a result, you get sort of a fogginess and. You、come out on the other end with an upgraded brain,、uh, particularly for trying to、um, deal with multitasking and, and memory. But in that interim, you have a lot of static, and that's what we see with teens.、Um, as Dobbs had Dobbs had said before in that quote about you've got this kid who is sleepwalking on Saturday, but is dazzling at breakfast on Monday. Yeah. But this is really important, right? Because gray matter contains cell bodies and connections between cells. These are called the synapses, and the decline in gray matter is a result of synaptic pruning. So the less important synaptic connections are pruned away, while the more important ones are strengthened. And again, this is that、um, trade that you make. For the teen brain, because you're getting greater flexibility in this brain that is developing the, the hardware,、um, that permanent stuff.、Mm-hmm. But you want that permanent stuff to really set in, you know, by age 25, because there's no changing some of that,、um, particularly the myelin coating that gets 
uh, solidified by age 25. And when I talk about the myelin coating, this is what helps um, deliver those transmissions in your brains as quick as it does. So there's definitely a trade-off, but this is why you get sort of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde effect in teenagers. Okay, so one of the big things about teens that uh, that that everyone either notices or and certainly experiences is the idea that the teenagers are the centers of the world. Like they're they just like the, in a typical family setting, the teen is only concerned with themselves. They're kind of blind to what mom and dad are feeling, what their sisters are feeling. Everything is about them. All right, so that that's one sort of slice of the typical teenage experience, and the other slice is this feeling of importance, mm-hmm. this this youthful uh, optimism that you'll find where someone believes, hey, I can go out there and I can change the world. I can take up I can take up journalism and make a difference. I'll, I'll cut even though I'm just published in the school paper. I'm going to change this town for good. <laughs> or or if you're like the teenage me, you think, oh, I'm going to write this great novel, and uh, you end up working on that despite really lacking the experiences and training uh, that it's going to take to actually do anything with it. But still, teenagers think that they. They can they can change the world and they and, they, and the, the whole world is about them and so it, it was interesting in this research to to read some of the scientific basis for that and it comes down to an old friend of ours oxytocin which we've talked about before this bonding hormone mm-hmm. so th- that may seem weird at first because you're thinking well they how's how's oxy- oxytocin factoring into this because they're it's all about them they're not bonding with uh, with with their family as well anymore because it's they're they're self centered right. Uh, but as it as it turns out, the hormones that uh, that change at puberty, uh, they do uh, first of all they spur the production of more receptors of oxytocin. So they have uh, uh, okay. So there's more of this going on, and they're effectively beginning to bond with the world for the first time. Mm-hmm. And that ends up taking the the form of questions like, "Who am I? Mm-hmm. You know, am I am I this kid who just?" believed whatever his dad did or went along with mom, or am I maybe uh, an insane clown posse fan and I'm, <laughs> I'm part of that vibe, or am, or am I, uh, you know, am I a child of whatever MTV show I'm really into? Am I, am I going to mold myself after this band or this comic book or this writer um, ends up this quest for identity? How do I fit into the world? And uh, and then when you start trying to figure out your, your role in the world, you're, you're like, well, what can I change about this? My... The world is this complex uh, uh, mechanism, but I'm important. So surely I can play a role in either making it better or continuing uh, to uh, to strengthen this cause or that cause. And it all comes down to oxytocin. Well, and what's so interesting about that is that this increased oxytocin then leads to increased sensitivity to its effects in the limbic system. And that's been linked to these feelings of self-consciousness, making a, um, a teenager feel like everyone is watching her. And it, it turns out that this oxytocin, this production, peaks around 15 years of age. So that correlates beautifully with this uh, this marauding, angsty teen who can't help but uh, not be able to think about herself constantly or feel like other, other people might be thinking about her. Because what you're really seeing here, too, is that uh, self-awareness is beginning to emerge. As you say, this question of who am I in this world and how do I define myself? Um, what I think is also interesting at this time in a teenager's life is that uh, there seems to be the inability to fully occupy another person's point of view. Okay, so this comes down to, to empathy. This is like the 
the test to see if uh, replicants, uh, to see if a person's a, a human or a human replicant in Blade Runner. Can they improvise? Right, right. Can they figure that out? Um, in uh, Sarah Jane Blakemore's TED Talk on teens, she talked about this inability to fully inhabit the perspective of another person. And she said that the medial prefrontal cortex, the midline area of the prefrontal cortex, is associated with social decisions. And she thinks that adolescents are using this part of their brain in a different way when making social decisions um, and perhaps using other parts of the brain. Her lab conducted a large developmental study of people ranging from seven years of age to their 20s, and they had a task in which people were shown a set of objects on a shelf. Now, they stood on one side of the shelf, and uh, there was a person on the other side. And the shelving system, most of the blocks in the shelving system were open so that you could see the person on the other side, but there was a backing on some of them. So what they asked all of these participants of this age range um, to do was to take cues from what they called the director, the person on the other side. Mm -hmm. So the director might say, hey, move the truck that's on the highest shelf to the very top. Now, what you don't see is that, or what the director doesn't see is that there is a truck on the highest shelf. He or she just can't see it. But the person, the teenager, can. So there was a huge error rate in teens when it came to this because they, the the theory is, is that they couldn't, uh, or they didn't take into account that there was another person on the other side looking and couldn't see that object. Now, they did the same thing, and um, instead of having a person on the other side, they just had a set of rules that said, if, you know, there's a backing on this one cube on the shelf, then, you know, do the following thing. So once they removed the person from the situation, this is what they found. They found that adults and teenagers really squared off at the at the non-director task, in other words, the one that didn't involve the person, they began to stabilize their scores and have the same error margin when they were asked to do this task. But when it involved the person on the other side that they had to imagine themselves as looking at those objects, teens were still making a huge amount of mistakes. Their error margin was much different, which leads Blakemore to this theory that Teens really can't, like their brains actually aren't handling data in the same way and interpreting it in a way that they can uh, put themselves outside of the center of attention or assume another person's um, vision or perspective. There's a, another study that backs that up, too, and this is one from Robert McGiven, a team of neuroscientists at San Diego State University. And this uh, involved nearly 300 people, ages uh, 10 to 22, and they showed them images containing faces or words uh, or a combination of the two. And then uh, the, the team asked them to describe the emotion expressed, such as angry, happy, sad, or neutral. The results of this were pretty remarkable. They said that the, the speed at which people could identify emotions dropped by up to 20% at the age of 11. All right. So there's suddenly you hit age 11 and there's a deep dive in your ability to uh, identify emotions. Then your reaction time gradually improves for each subsequent year, but it only reaches uh, back to normal levels at age 18. So so again, you see there's this this is the period in which you can think of it like that. The house is is again, the house is getting a lot of work done to it. Uh, there are a lot of guys in there doing construction, rewiring, changing the ways that rooms are laid out. uh, And this is the, the dive in, uh, in, in, in the brain's ability to actually register other people's emotions during that time. 
You know what's so interesting about this is we we just came off those podcasts about hallucinogens and consciousness, and um, in that podcast we talked about the seat of consciousness in our brains and how there may not be as coherent of a consciousness sense of self as we really think. And Mm -hmm. I think this bears out in the teen brain and why it's so confounding to parents who, again, wake up with, you know, have a dazzling child at breakfast and then maybe that night have a completely different child on their hands because of the various things that are going on in the construction of a house. And along those lines... Really, you should think of of, a, of one's teenage years as a change in consciousness. There is a you know there yeah. are no there are no drugs involved in this. It's just part of the, the 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 growth of the brain and and the way that they experience the world takes uh, goes through some substantial changes in this time. Yeah, and um, and the way they are perceiving things, in particular, something like social rejection, because I think that this happens a lot where a parent can see a child who are teenager, I should say, uh, who seems to be completely um, just mortified, terrorized, uh, completely depressed about their social situation. Maybe it was a best friend that wrote mm-hmm. them off or something happened. And it seems so dire to the teenager. But to right. the adult, it seems like, well, yeah, these things happen, of course. Um, but Dobbs makes this point that... There's a reason for this. It's not just high drama. He says that our brains react to peer, at that age, peer exclusion, much as they respond to threats to physical health or food supply. He says this is shown in brain scans and that at the neural level, we perceive social rejection as a threat to existence. He says this, knowing this might be somewhat helpful to parents to know that the hysteria of a 13 year old who's deceived by his or her best friend really does feel like, you know, a, a kick in the stomach to that person. Yeah. I mean, and if you take it out of our modern day life and you put that into a, you know, this sort of imaginary, half imaginary primordial caveman age, it makes a lot more sense. You mm-hmm. know, you're, you're leaving home, you're becoming rebellious, and you're about to, you know, to, to set off on your own in this uh, wild and dangerous world. It becomes really important who you're going to hang out with and whether you're going to be accepted by that group. Right, right. Yeah. And, and to have experiences like physical, mental pain yeah. because of it, um, it makes sense of it in the light of how it's being perceived. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a different skew on the teenage brain, and I think that it helps to explain why there are so many inconsistencies in personality. Uh, but not only that, I think that there's a part of this that we can celebrate, this risk-taking, which, you know, obviously I, when my daughter becomes a teenager, I hope she doesn't drive 113 miles per hour as David Dobbs' son did in his article mm-hmm. that he talks about. Um, but I think that there's that element of risk-taking that is you know, present in the teen life that we look at and we admire because it's that teen saying, this is who I am. Um, I'm attempting to stake a claim in this world and express myself. And I'm leaving home. P.S. Yeah. Well, the, the, the crazy thing, too, is that is that by the time your, your daughter reaches uh, her teen years, like what will rebellion be at that point? Like what kind of music will be rebellion? You know, what? What kind of uh, what what speed will she have to go in her hover car to upset you? Um, okay, so here's the thing though that makes this really relevant to uh, the world at large is that forty percent of the world's adolescents do not have access to secondary education, and this is really important because uh, secondary education 
is where minds are molded. Um, it's another place for social scenarios to play out in a more nuanced grasp of the world and another set of uh, tools to deal with. So we've talked about the year 2050 and the fact that there's going to be something like 9.5 billion people. And mm-hmm. part of those 9.5 billion people will be something um, in a youth bulge or something we've called a youth bulge. Yes, a large percentage of, of those people will which be Which can youth. be a potentially dangerous time or at least a changing time for any culture. Yeah. So it would make sense that uh, you would want kids, teenagers, adolescents to all have access to things that could help them with impulse control um, and social skills. So just something to think about. Yeah. It's not just um, something that we think about in Western terms of, oh, crazy teen years and driving fast and listening to crazy music. There are other ramifications about what it means to be a teenager in the world. Yeah. Bottom line, the, the teenager is a strange, winged creature, um, at times beautiful, at times grotesque. But uh, in due time, those wings will fall off, and then the, the wing holes will heal over as well, generally. Usually. Yeah. Though if I really wanted to carry that metaphor out, I would say that the, the wing holes leave a, a certain amount of scarage on any individual. Yeah. And sometimes maybe to carry out the metaphor even more, they're like little nubs where the wings fell off, so they still have kind of like wing nubs back there, you know. But, but I'll stop at that point. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's call over the robot here and do one quick piece of listener mail. All right. Well, here's a little something from uh, that we heard on Facebook from Isabel von Finkelstein. Um, I'm pretty sure that's not a real name, so I'm, I'm, I hope it is. I feel confident uh, using the whole thing here. And I salute you, Isabel. I know. I I love seeing that. There's a, a comment from Isabel von Finkelstein, and she says, "Hey, just listen to the podcast about killer laughter. I love Monty Python and the goodies. I grew up on them. I'm not sure what the kids of this generation think of it, though. Ha ha. As an Aussie, I would say that it is more uh, our kind of humor, probably due to our English roots." I am first-generation Australian. My parents are English. I think we are perhaps a very silly race. If you're interested in perceptions of humor, I would say that myself, and for a lot of people I know, we tend to find American sitcom and movie humor very obvious, bland, and, well, not funny or clever. Uh, She says, an example, everyone loves Raymond. God, that show is boring. However, Seinfeld and The Simpsons were are pretty big here. Well, you know, I I would think there are a lot of Americans who agree. Exactly what she's saying. Um, She continues, though, I think Aussies tend to appreciate the silly, the sarcastic, and the clever uh, underlying dirty adult kind of humor. I think uh, a good example of humor not translating well between cultures would be the Kath and Kim movie. Although not all Aussies like Kath and Kim, it really is a good laugh at ourselves and our suburban culture, which is very daggy. Um, Daggy? I guess it's like a... I don't know. I like it, though. I like it, but I think it's maybe an Australian thing. She continues... They are the epitome of the Aussie bogan class. I know that the show uh, was a big success, but the movie was a complete flop because it was the American translation of the show. The humor didn't translate at all. I wouldn't say that Kath and Kim is particularly clever humor, but we do love a good laugh at ourselves. Anyway, I'm deviating. I was uh, messaging you to tell you that my mom's adopted father died laughing. He had an aneurysm. He and his nana were going uh, to go out on a holiday to Singapore in 1979, and he was joking about all the girls he was going to pick up. He just dropped dead, and my nana thought he was having her on. Uh, I think it uh, would be a really great way to go, personally. As always, love the show. 
Wow. Okay. So there's a so, lot of great uh, stuff in that uh, that listener. Yeah, she right touches now. on a, a good many things. Um, first, I want to bring up the the American um, humor thing, and I'm not going back to bat for the American humor, but I do want to point out, as you had in that podcast, that sometimes when you're trying to serve up something for the masses, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when they were trying to find the the world's funniest joke, the right. scientists, that you're going to have a kind of a milk toast version of what is funny because you're trying to appeal to everyone. And I think that because in the U.S., entertainment is one of our biggest exports that we try to do that, although we're not necessarily exporting it to other parts of the world, but we are trying to make it something that is consumable for everybody. Yeah. I say we. I'm not involved in Everybody Loves Raymond, but uh, I can see how that was a show that was maybe formulated to try to appeal to a wide swath of people. Well, there's like that sitcom format, right, of uh, the ugly or overweight husband and the beautiful wife and then the... The, the troublesome teen and maybe the younger child as well. There's like that, that. And the crazy neighbor. And the crazy neighbor. And it's just, you see it time and time again. And, but you see it time and time again because it works. It's a proven formula. It's a business. And a business is always going to go with a formula that works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. it, you know, it is what it is. And then inevitably, there's always that comedy that you're really into and you're like, oh, this is the best show ever. Why, why are these guys not millionaires? Like, this should be. This should be the most popular show in the world, and of course it isn't, because a show like, say, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which is one of my favorite comedies of all time, British uh, show, brilliant show. Uh, Look Around You is another one, just brilliant show, brilliant humor. I love them to death, but these are not things that a wide audience is going to find the humor in, and and I have to realize that, that it's more of a, you know, it's it's a a smaller thing. And I was thinking about Louis, and there's no doubt that, like... I would say like 98% of the audience will be turned off at some point because they'll be insulted by something that he says, and yet it's brilliant comedy. Yeah, some, that show alienates everybody at one yeah. point or another. So anyway, uh, thanks, uh, Isabel, for the uh, the, the wonderful uh, insight and also the, the personal bit about your family. And I wasn't laughing at I, I kind of choked up a little bit and laughed there. was not laughing at his death, but just the idea just that I could just easily imagine this older gentleman cracking some joke and then just, uh, you know, just losing it. And you, you can't help but think of someone laughing without sort of laughing yourself. So Well, and as she had noted, it seems like a nice way to yeah. exit. Yeah, if, all, you know, of all the ways you could to. go, it's like uncontrollable laughter seems like a, a, a pretty good way to kick it. Yeah. So if uh, the rest of you would like to share anything with us, uh, particularly uh, about today's topic, about teenagers. Some of you are teenagers. Uh, and then the rest of you probably were teenagers or in some rare cases will become teenagers. So it would be interesting to get perspectives from everybody on this point. Let us know what your teenage experience was like and how it matches up with some of the science we discussed here. If you are a teenager, uh, you know, turn it on yourself and tell us how does how does this make you feel? Uh, do, do, you, do you see this stuff happening in yourself and how, how are you processing it? And if you are not yet a teenager, or better yet, if you're a parent and you have a not yet a teenager, maybe quiz them a little bit. Find out what, what do they think about the teenagers in their life and what's what's about to change in them. Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear about any of that. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter. We are, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Facebook as well as Tumblr. And on Twitter, we are Blow the Mind. And you can drop us a line at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.